welcome to episode 13 of Air Mick Talks with me, Richard Kutcher, and your fortnightly podcast from the UK's risk and insurance management community. This is the final instalment in our three-part look at our annual survey report, Top Risks and Megatrends 2020. Later, we will be joined by Christopher Maggie, Head of Commercial DNO at AIG in the UK, to discuss some of the key governance and regulation themes that have emerged from the annual survey. But first, we are joined by Paul Merry, Strategy Partner at KPMG, and Artos Cockins, Associate Director at KPMG to discuss the always hot topic of trust and reputation, the role of the risk professional in this area, and the insurance options already available and currently in development. Paul begins by giving his general reaction to the results of the 2020 survey. If you look at the report, I guess not much has changed over the past years in that eight of the top 10 risks in 2020 were among the top 10 risks a year ago. Um, but perhaps a not surprising new entrant is the risk of pandemic. If you look at previous year surveys, it doesn't get into the top 10s, though there have been multiple high-profile reports being published for years about the seriousness of uh, pandemic risk. But it's interesting that it's still only at number four. Why isn't it even higher? But I guess that reflects the timing of um, the AMIC survey in that when it opened the early birds on 14th of February, it was still a potential pandemic at that point, and and people probably were still thinking that it's not so much of a risk. Those that completed it on March the 31st, just before closing, um, would have been a week or so into into lockdown, so they've had a very different view. So it's going to be interesting to see how attitudes change over time. Yeah, I think what's really interesting on on the reputation uh, topic, Artis and Paul, is that, of course, when we talk about some of those top cyber risks in the report or even pandemic itself, of course, there's always elements of reputational risk connected to all of those. So all of those risks in, in that top 20 have a reputational element to them. So Artis, I just thought it'd be good to understand from yourself, what do we mean by trust and reputation? How do we define it? And how can organizations think about it in a more a more tangible way? Yeah, it's a really good question. And and I think so one thing to make make clear is that reputation is not really the same thing as identity or brand. Rather than looking at who your organization is, which brand would normally do, you would look at what others actually see you as. So, so that's more the reputational angle. And so one simple way to look at reputation is that there are two types of reputation. The first one is, and, and, and that's what we'd normally think about it, is the perception of organization's capability. Or if you think about that, that's all about organization's products and services, the price levels it offers. And... This type of reputation is typically very sticky, meaning once you acquire a certain level of capability or reputation, it changes very slowly. And this type of reputation is especially important for customers who will then be more or less likely to buy your products based on, based on this reputation. And the second type is the perception of organization's character. Or, you know, the way the organization acts or the way it goes about doing things. And so this type of reputation is typically very volatile. It fluctuates a lot. And interestingly, this type is slightly less important for customers. So 
they might demonstrate a lot of frustration about company's character on social media or somewhere else if things go wrong and and yet still go and buy company's products or services and but we need to remember that this type of reputation could be very very important to other types of stakeholders so think about organizations employees or think about business partners indeed think about the government journalists and other stakeholders and you know the the risks associated with this type of reputation uh, will then focus around all these different stakeholders perceiving the organization to be on the wrong side of a particular issue or perhaps just the business acting in a very legal or unethical way so so a lot of reputational damage cases are related to the so-called activist events which can change some aspects of the moral compass in the society. Yeah, perhaps uh, I'll add some color there, Richard, in terms of the types of reputation that Artis has outlined. So for example, the organization's reputation for capability. Now that can be take years to build up and then is a bit more sticky as Artis is saying, but it can be threatened when something goes wrong and questions whether the quality of what you produce or the service that you provide isn't what it sh- what it should be. So, for example, if we go back to 2016, a leading electronics producer announced a recall of their smartphone after reports of battery overheating. You might remember this, and it re- resulted in fires. Now, okay, something can go wrong, but then they replaced the affected phones, and the reports of the overheating continued, resulting in yet another recall and ceasing production. So, the overall total lost revenue was estimated at about 17 billion dollars in that case. And if we pick an example on the other type of reputation that artists are talking about, the, the character, there's numerous examples even you know, th- this year of, of this, particularly the activist events that, that artists um, referred to. But if we take the pandemic as an example in UK supermarkets, in KPMG Nunwood's latest customer experience study, we've seen very contrasting fortunes. So one supermarket jumped massively in the rankings reflecting its policy of prioritizing vulnerable customers for online deliveries, which was, you know, whilst a previously regarded supermarket plummeted in the standards as it was seen as it was prioritizing profit. Are there other kind of examples of chronic failures in reputation management and, and kind of you've already touched on it a little bit, I think, Artis, but why and, and how is that important? Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I, I think something... I didn't mention, but it's also important is then, and we have researched a lot recently, is this notion that the traditional shareholder value, you know, things like physical assets, cash flow, and many other things, is increasingly being replaced by broader stakeholder value, which then means that, you know, the reputational landscape that organizations have to manage are becoming way more complex. And one of the things we found following COVID-19 is that there is almost a new type of consumer emerging that is one that is very keen to see COVID-19 as an opportunity to reset values in the world. And so in this context, trust is becoming increasingly important. So you suddenly have a world where customers are genuinely concerned on whether the organization will put the well-being of their customers and employees ahead of the profit. And customers will be thinking, well, will I be safe when I interact with them? Can I trust them to put my well-being before profit? Will my data be safe? And so 
you know, another question they could ask is, will, will they be, just behave credibly when it comes to their environmental and social obligations? And this is not a new thing. People have been thinking about climate change and many other aspects for a while, but COVID-19 has definitely amplified some of these trends. There's a lot of examples of both the capability and the the character issues. Let's pick one on the, the character issues that's infamous. Um, a leading jewelry retailer losing 80% of their share value um, a few decades ago because the CEO made disparaging comments about the quality of their products. And ultimately, for that organization, they had to rebrand themselves, change the name and, and, and try and start again. More recently, with the activist events, you can see that a number of brands organizations, whether it's in the entertainment industry, whether it's um, certain retailers, they've struggled massively to react and respond. So it's the speed of which that standards change over time and that people's perspectives on, on events can mean that the reputation can dive very, very quickly and organizations really need to be on the front foot to respond. You've outlined some of these challenges, what we, what we mean by reputation uh, and what the challenges are. In regards to the role of the risk professionals and, of course, AIRBIT members, what, what role do you think risk professionals can be taking within their businesses to support them on the reputation management? A vital role is, is, the, is the short answer. From the work that we've been doing, two things stand out. I think the first one is being forward-looking and proactive, so it's easily said but less effectively done. The most successful businesses undertake horizon scanning regularly. They're looking at the looming threats before they hit the organizations. They're monitoring changing customer sentiments, significant social movements, and adjusting things before they potentially go terribly wrong, as I described in some of those cases. The second point is to find ways of working more closely with executives, the risk owners themselves, really. It could be a, a chief financial officer, a chief marketing officer, communications manager, or any other employee in charge of looking after the reputation. And ultimately, the reputation encompasses the whole organization. And we've heard of many situations where the link between the risk manager and the business could be a lot stronger. So for example, cases of where risk managers are trying to minimize exposures without balancing them really with the overall general business strategy and operational practices that are led by the risk owners. So one example on on, on this regard is is marketing managers or or you know, chief marketing officers and businesses. So clearly, they are actively involved in managing brands and reputations. And, you know, depending on their activities around marketing the business, you know, the reputation could go one way or another, and, and risk managers will need to keep that in mind. To give one example, it turns out that something like 86% of people would pay more for services from a company with higher ratings and reviews. And according to another study, every star increase in online reviews would lead to 5 to 9% increase in revenue. And so you can see immediately how marketing plays a role in strengthening business reputation. And then it's really, really helpful if a, if a risk manager uh, works closely with, as I said, marketing managers, heads of marketing, chief marketing officers, roles like that in organizations to really collectively try to create a plan that can safeguard an organization and not only keep that reputational value 
intact, but also collectively think about ways of continuously enhancing it. Artists, I'd just like to talk about the role that insurance can play here on on reputation, because yeah, I have I've written and covered the insurance market for about seven years now, and heard about various uh, players coming uh, forward with kind of reputation related products, and I've always heard uh, mixed responses to those. What, what do you see as the kind of the role of insurance in relation to reputational risk? Yeah, it's really interesting, and and as Paul said, you would you would normally look at internal risk management activities and then you would be thinking well is there a role risk transfer could play and i mean normally you would think about it in a way where you would say well if the usual activities are insufficient then i would be thinking about turning to insurance and if you think about insurance market existing reputation insurance coverage normally focuses on compensating direct expenses related to mitigating the harm after a reputational event. So, so it's the direct cost straight after, but they might not always cover the full cost of the event itself. Although then again, there are some policies that do cover reputation-related business interruption, but only as long as you can prove that your revenue has suffered as a result of that. So just to give an example, you know, one of the Lloyd's players offers a reputational harm product where you can get something like $250,000 immediately after a reputational event to cover, as I said, you know, the immediate cost in the aftermath of the crisis. But then secondly, if the crisis deepens, you can get covered for business interruption. So in this particular case, it is normally calculated based on the revenue drop. So you basically compare the actual revenue after the reputational event with the expected revenue. And so this expected revenue is then calculated by looking at the revenue for the same quarter, so a three-month period, a year ago. And then you would apply some sort of reasonable growth rate to kind of say, well, I was expecting my revenue to be this much in these three three months after the event. Actually, it was a bit lower, and you know, therefore, this is my drop in the revenue. And then they would go a bit further and 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 kind of make it a bit more sophisticated. And they would be also looking at the profit margin, and they would agree this profit margin in the policy document. And so if you think, think that through, you would have a do- document that would articulate what the revenue used to be, how you calculate this expected revenue in the future. You would have the profit margin articulated in a policy document. And so in case something happens and the business and the insurance company can both agree that there was an event, it then becomes fairly straightforward to look at that financial loss and for the insurance company to pay out. So so it has some parametric nature, I think, where as long as you articulate all these things, the, the actual payout can be fairly straightforward. And then some insurance companies are thinking about offering additional cover for restoring reputation. But again, that, that varies across the market players. And, and there are many, many different ways of thinking about this. Just one to one alternative way to mention is that some players are thinking about an entirely different model where instead of looking at the actual financial loss, you would be thinking about 
the actual strength of your reputation. So imagine that you could measure your reputation on a scale from zero to 100. And say you find out that your reputational score used to be pretty stable over the past couple of years, say between 40 and 50. And then one day there's an incident and your score drops to 20. So clearly you can then claim that there is a reputational damage because, as I said, it used to be 40 to 50 and it dropped to 20. And the insurer would then immediately pay out. Obviously, a model like that would depend on establishing full trust between the insurance company and the business so that both parties have you know, full belief in that index. But as long as that can be established, I think a model like that could be quite helpful because in such a case, you don't really even need to go and, and, and calculate the actual loss. You just look at the index and, and you pay out accordingly. So that would be quite easy to use. But obviously, early days, these, these sorts of products are, are just being developed at the moment. And I imagine it will take a bit of time. Thanks, thanks, Artis. Really, really interesting to hear what some of those options already available or beginning to be available are. Paul, then, just lastly, how can the role of insurance be enhanced when it comes to reputation management? Because as I mentioned, there are there is lots of talk about this. So where do you think there are more areas for insurance to be involved? It's definitely an area that um, insurance should be more involved. There's probably the first bit is the the awareness of um, organisations that insurance can play a role here and, and for insurers put in a bit more focus on this area um, because insurance really is about protecting companies' most vital assets. And as we've described, reputation is most the, the most vital asset for many organizations. So um, how can insurance be enhanced? I think if we break it down, in developing insurance offerings, it's, it's better understanding of the asset values, what the triggers are, the respective profitabilities, the calculating the actual loss. All of these elements progress is being made. Um, so artists describe the use of indexes, for example. Um, there can be certain parametric triggers. So very clearly identifiable event has happened, therefore it's paid out. So it doesn't turn into a, a legal case. It's straight away uh, a payment. So there's clarity for the, the customer. Technology is playing a role in some of these things so that there's more advanced tools that can be used to track people's sentiments uh, towards brands, businesses as well as with different stakeholder groups. So there's a range of, of tools that could be um, could be developed and embedded in insurance offerings uh, that look at the different stakeholders of, of organizations. And perhaps the last one is the prevention aspect. So just as we've seen in many other areas of insurance, the customers really are more concerned about preventing the incidents from happening in the first place rather than protecting them after the event. I think that insurance can play a very powerful role here in encouraging better risk management practices, better behaviors from organizations that can tie this in with the ESG strategies of businesses. And so developing offerings alongside partners, just as the industry has successfully done in cyber in this space, I can see that as a key development going forward. Well, thank you, Paul and Artis, for a very interesting and thorough assessment of the risk and insurance landscape in relation to trust and reputation. Now, I am very happy to say we are joined by Christopher Maggie, Head of Commercial DNO at AIG in the UK. 
AIG focused on the governance laws and regulations area of the survey. And over the next seven minutes, Christopher addresses the key areas of most concern to risk professionals in the current environment. So, Chris, of those risks that fell into the governance laws and regulations megatrend area, it was it was compliance with evolving digital regulation and regulatory uncertainties that came out as as those of highest concern to our AMIT members. They were fourth and fifth, respectively. What was your initial response uh, to these results and, and did they surprise you? I think my initial response was was just interesting, but quite frankly, not too surprising, as I know that um, organizations more and more are facing extremely turbulent times, I think both economically as well as geopolitically. As uh, we can see from the findings of the latest survey with AMIC respondents, risks in relation to the governance laws and regulation area continue to raise significant levels of concern for the risk professionals and their member organizations and even their boards. Why do you think then that digital regulation continues to be of such high concern to members? Um, I think for a number of reasons, uh, largely compliance um, with evolving digital regulation continues to be a, a common uh, concern among, among risk professionals over the medium term. Uh, I think it certainly ties in with the overall uh, importance of cyber and technology megatrend. I guess more specifically, data protection and privacy have been big areas of high concern for corporate boards for some time now. But the recently introduced GDPR, which is the General Data Protection Regulation, the UK Information Commissioner's Office, otherwise known as the ICO, now has the ability to level public fines, which in severe cases could reach up to numbers that are either in greater than the sum of 20 million euros or as much as 4% of the worldwide annual turnover of a company who's been found in breach. Uh, I think this raises the stakes for companies to ensure they're absolutely maintaining the utmost of compliance within that space. Also, I think the upcoming duty of care laws to protect children from online harms, when they're introduced, will, will certainly add to the area of focus. But I think the underlying message is that good cyber security governance is is absolutely essential in overall corporate governance in today's world. Then what are some of the other areas of concern organizations need to have top of mind in the governance laws and and regulations bracket that might not have been brought so much to the fore by the survey? Well, you mentioned um, the the two higher ranking responses in the survey, but the top five in the governance laws and regulations area of the, uh, the mega trends responses The other three were increased sanctions, regulatory activity, bribery and corruption and uh, anti-money laundering activity, ethical breaches, and I think lastly, heightening shareholder litigation risk, i.e. individual against individual directors and officers of a company and the use of DNO liability insurance. I think currently Brexit-related regulatory uncertainties persist as both parties to the withdrawal agreement have still to reach an agreement on several aspects of their ultimate relationship after the period of transition. The current environment is really likely to add even more uncertainty to the negotiation process 
was quite frankly averted focus from the ongoing need for ultimate resolution of the Brexit withdrawal. I think while the current uh, environment may distract from risks relating to sanctions and regulatory activity, trade tariffs, issues of bribery and corruption, anti-money laundering, clearly those risks continue to have material implications for boards and risk professionals. I think the risks are ever expanding. I think is evidenced by the increased U.S. pressure on Iran and really what is a burgeoning trade war between the U.S. and China over technology, equipment, and possible uh, underlying security threats. I think in the U.K., a new sanctions regime created by the Sanctions and Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2018, called the Sanctions Act, I think will supersede EU sanctions on 31 December 2020, when the transition period of the UK's withdrawal from the EU ends. Uh, the law was enacted so that the UK can continue to uphold its international obligations following its withdrawal from the EU. So the act will give the UK government really wider powers to implement sanctions, including financial sanctions, trade sanctions, and even immigration sanctions. Companies doing business in the UK I think we'll need to seriously adjust their sanctions compliance practices and prepare themselves um, for, for these changes and further regulations expected to follow. Most likely uh, you know, heavily favoring seeking advice from outside counsel when in doubt. Thanks, Chris. I think just lastly, I just want to bring up um, shareholder litigation risk as that, that seems relatively low on, on, on the kind of risk map in the survey at a place at 16th, but I know it's something that we've talked about a lot in the past. Do we see much activity in the shareholder litigation risk area and why should organizations be mindful of those risks? Yes, we, we, we do see, I guess through our DNO claims uh, activity notifications that the scrutiny of the decisions made by directors and officers is certainly intensifying and that scrutiny comes from largely its uh, its shareholders. But I, I think the, the ranking and the placement of the, of the risk is surprising in today's economic environment and certainly shines a light on the differences in individual perceptions versus the reality of DNO liability risk for even the best managers of the best-run companies, creating perhaps a false notion that um, it couldn't happen to us, which I think history has proven isn't the case. I think more and more corporate boards are being forced to defend themselves and their companies or a growing range of allegations involving matters such as bribery and corruption, sanctions, certainly regulatory breaches and cybersecurity. Um, we have even have new trends in so-called event-driven matters that also uh, have emerged informing uh, movements such as uh, Me Too and, and driving litigation in that area. I think in terms of solvency risk, uh, which is one of the more fundamental reasons why companies buy DNO insurance, which is perhaps most likely to confront many companies as the 2020 global economic downturn deepens. Uh, I noted that worsening economic outlook is the third highest risk concern across all the categories surveyed, and that concern certainly will likely have only increased. Uh, since the pandemic began. 
Well, thank you to Christopher and all of our guests, Paul and Artis, in this latest edition, and to all of our five survey partners who have worked with us throughout the project, AIG, Control Risks, KPMG, QBE, and Willis Towers Watson. A link to the full Top Risks and Megatrends 2020 report is in the episode description, and you can find it on the Airmic website. See you next time. Mm-hmm.